Hello, and welcome to another episode of COVID in Africa, a podcast looking at the continental response to COVID-19. While we will endeavor to give you the most up-to-date, accurate information about the coronavirus crisis, our aim is to bring you stories on how this crisis is affecting people's behavior and attitudes on the continent. Our goal is to pursue the systemic and underreported issues underlying the crisis, and also to bring some interesting human stories. In this episode, we'll be focusing on space and justice under COVID-19. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalab. A few days ago, two pictures showing the reality of life under COVID-19 measures in South Africa was trending on Twitter. Did you see them? There was one on Friday, the 1st of May, which showed hundreds of Kryptonians who'd gathered in their droves to exercise on the promenade at Seapoint. Similarly, surfers and other water sports enthusiasts park their boats and their opinions at the Musenberg beachfront, asserting their rights to ride the wave. The South African government had reduced COVID restrictions from the highest level 5 to level 4, allowing people time to go outside and exercise between 6 and 9 in the morning. Pictures of large groups of people exercising, walking, running, stretching or strolling, some with their dogs, without masks and in close proximity with each other, went viral. Some Twitter commentators even went as far as naming Cape Town the Wuhan of Africa. The very next day, another video of life under COVID in South Africa also went viral. This time, it was hundreds of people lining up for up to four kilometers to fetch food parcels in the slums of Centurion near South Africa's capital city, Pretoria. The widening inequality gap in the country couldn't be more stark. The images of people queuing for food looked almost exactly like the long queues of black Africans waiting to vote for the very first time in 1994. It had that same feeling of nothing ever being the same again. It had that same feeling of nothing never having changed. It put the former president Thabo Mbeki's remarks during a 2016 speech of South Africa being a country of two nations in sharp perspective. And this reality of two nations, underwritten by the perpetuation of the racial, gender and spatial disparities, born of a very long period of colonial and apartheid, white minority domination, constitutes a material base which reinforces the notion that indeed we are not one nation, but two nations. This time, the two nations were clearly defined, with one nation campaigning and fighting for food, shelter and the right to life, while the other was fighting and campaigning for cigarettes, alcohol and the right to exercise. So which side 
is safer from COVID-19. Let me just um, sort of break it down. So you know that... that um, That's Professor Carolyn Wanjiku Kihoto, an urban right? sociologist with visiting associations at Oxford and Wurz University. She has spent most of her life trying to understand cities in the global south and how they can be made more equal for everyone who lives in them. I mean, geographers as a whole have always understood that space is a very important determining factor in, in the trajectory of a child's life, for example. In fact, in, in the U.S., there's been studies that show that where a child is born, the neighborhood in which a child is born really determines their, their outcomes later in life. The likelihood of you being successful is much more difficult or even almost impossible, depending on your circumstances, than a child that's born in a, in a good neighborhood. That's why we say that, that space actively shapes the future of children or the future of populations that live in deprived neighborhoods. And of course, it shapes those who live in well-resourced neighborhoods. You grow up in a rich area, the likelihood you have fewer hoops to jump to become wealthy and successful yourself. Last week, she published a paper she co-authored on spatial injustice and COVID-19, in which she highlights how policy interventions intended to contain the coronavirus crisis could erode whatever resilience poor households have built to survive. How, why do we judge certain spaces as good or bad or as unsafe and not safe? Part of it is that the material conditions of those spaces lead us to believe that they're not good areas. So, for example, you're living in, in Johannesburg, of course, in the northern suburbs, you have, you know, great parks, you have a nice school, you know, you have yards with beautiful grass and, and, and plants out, beautiful walls and, you know, houses. And you immediately think, oh, you know, this is a wealthy area and this is a place where I feel that I can feel safe, you know. But if you go to informal uh, settlements, for example, where where the material conditions are really difficult. They lack piped water, for example. You don't have adequate um, sanitation. The investments in schools and public parks are, are, are not up to par, you know. And so these areas already, materially, when you look at them, feel different than the areas with, with urban resources and, 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 and investment in infrastructure. So, so, you know, you have the perception, and the perception is also led by, you know, urban infrastructure, how, much, how many res public resources and private resources people put into space. And then the third is also the power structures. So the public policy, the budgeting, that makes a determination about what to what resources to put in one area and what resources not to put in that area. So if we look, for example, at um, informal informal settlements in across across the continent, oftentimes they're really um, deprived in terms of infrastructure. People live in crowded areas, in little crowded rooms, or you know housing structures and don't have adequate sanitation, are often unsafe, particularly for women at night. You know, so there are all these sort of conditions below which is a decision that has been made at a public level about how much 
infrastructure to put into this area. They remain, in many cases, illegal because they, you know, no one has tenure. The people there are not considered to have tenure. And so there's no investment in those areas, particularly because of that. So if you look at all these, these factors, perception, material conditions, and the ways in which political and budgeting decisions are made in these spaces, you see already a, a downward trend. Like anybody born in these circumstances would have a very hard time getting out of these conditions. And so all of these reinforce and reproduce what we call spatial injustice. Because it's not just it's not just the people who are living there, it's it's the structural underpinnings of society that have created these spaces. And this is why she says COVID nineteen measures could push the poor further into an endless cycle of poverty and lack. The expectation, you know, that, that everybody can socially distance. You know, the expectation that everybody has piped water and can always clean their hands with soap. You know, the, the kind of edicts that we've seen that are meant to address this thing and that would address this thing had people had the basics at hand, you know, so to speak. It's a cruel joke. And so it becomes this kind of um, blame game that in which the poor never win um, because they're expected to do things that they can't, but then because they can't, they're also, they also suffer for it, you know, even more. And for me, I think... Um, that part of it is that there's no, we don't have a recognition that cities belong to everyone, both the poor and those who are wealthy. Kyoto suggests three solutions to this problem, legalizing informal settlements, investing in infrastructure, and including communities in decisions about their neighborhoods. Policy does not see informal settlements as places where people live, as, as legal. There's always this move or shift to, you know, change informal habitats, uh, move people, de-densify people. These are spaces where policy can act upon people. We need A, to recognize these spaces as part of the city, as impacting the city in both a good way. They provide a lot of opportunities and, and labor and whatever for people coming into the cities, but also the ways in which they impact the city. Part of it is listening to organizations that have long represented marginalized people in the city because they are coming up with far more responsive and I think more effective solutions than than wash your hands and socially distance like you know how do we do that so I, I feel that there's th- that that social mobilization is really one of the ways in which we get governments to recognize um, these poor parts of the city. There's been a number of promising interventions by people living in informal settlements which prove that solutions are already available where people live. The Mungano Vijiji that is part of SDI, which is the Slum Dwellers International, in fact, they actually map informal settlements in Kenya. They have offered to work together with government to identify spaces in which people in their communities can can socially distance. So, you know, they've mapped, you know, social halls, schools, areas which can be cordoned off so that people can socially distance. What's more important to remember, she says, is that the lives of the rich and poor are intertwined.
this virus has no boundaries. So there's no, you know, we'll, we'll leave it in the northern sub, you know, in, in the southern suburbs of Johannesburg, but us in the north, we can clean up our air and that's not going to happen, right? If we see our, our, our lives as intertwined, how would we make changes to the ways in which we invest in spaces so that we ensure the safety of all? The same applies on a global scale. The worldwide population is only as safe as its most vulnerable nations. South Africa continues to be the highest affected country on the continent with more than 7,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and 148 deaths. Algeria, which has the second highest number of infections, also has the highest deaths per infection on the continent, with 470 people having died so far. Since the first case was reported in Algeria in late February, the disease has spread to over 30 countries in less than a month, now affecting almost all states on the continent except for Lesotho. The latest country to report a confirmed case was Comoros on the 3rd of May. Next week, we'll explore the treatment options and vaccine development taking place in different countries on the continent. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch with us at info at soundafrica.org or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and our newsletter by going to our website at www.soundafrica.org. That's all from us at COVID in Africa this week, a podcast brought to you by Sound Africa. Music in this episode is Peace in Our Land by Silo Chico Twala. Story editing was done by Kelly Eve Kopman. I'm JD Ramalapa. Merci, obrigado, shukran, asante sana, baya danki, Thank you for listening. Stay safe and sound. <laughs>